Well, as I've been intimating, I've come to the end of what I'd got to say to you concerning this question of preaching. So, we now are open to any questions that you may like to put to me, any matters you'd like to raise. Be quite free. The whole object is that we do our best together to be able ministers of the New Testament. That's our object and purpose, I'm sure, all of us. So let's be perfectly free. Uh, if there's anything you've not understood or anything you'd like to query or to question, well, be quite free to do so. Uh, I'm here to help as best I can. I don't know whether you've been making notes of points as we've gone along, or whatever it is. So, yes? Uh, one of the points that you made under um, the uh, title of repeating sermons was uh, that uh, how often should a sermon be preached? And you said this, we should stop preaching that sermon when it ceases to grip us. Now, if we're preaching the Word of God, it seems to me, would this indicate a problem when it ceases to grip us? I mean, uh, uh, would you comment on this further? Yes, I think, I think that's very good. Well, what one means is this. Your point is, I, I take it, that uh, should we ever be in a state when the Word of God doesn't grip us? It sounds as if I'm saying that one may get into that condition. Well, the answer, you see, is this. You've always got in the matter of a sermon or preaching to differentiate between the content and the form. You know, I've been making that point, haven't I? Well, what I mean there is this, you see, that your repetition of this sermon becomes mechanical, and you're aware of that. And the form, as it were, is taken over rather than the content. And the moment you feel that, then I suggest you should stop preaching that sermon. I, I don't know whether that helps you to understand what I mean. In, in other words, you, you get the feeling that you are more or less repeating something mechanically. Though it is the truth, the truth hasn't changed at all. But because of this curious uh, relationship between the two things, it's the difference again between the sermon and preaching. And if, if this notion of a mechanical element taking over comes in, then I say is the point at which you stop preaching that sermon. Good, very good. I've noticed occasionally that you use, when you use an illustration, you'll use it from the uh, scripture text, and a different text, and you'll uh, take this story or whatever you call it, and use that as an example. Now, is this really valid, or would it, would it not be more meaningful for us to, to use examples from uh, the current situation? Well, it, it just depends. Um, there is, there is this uh, anecdote or bit of history or story, whatever you call it, in the scriptures. And, uh, well, I think that they're incomparable stories. Uh, and and they, if, if, if one feels that they do illustrate this point perfectly, why not use them? People are generally familiar with them. Uh, I would say that the majority of people listening to us are, are more likely to be familiar with them than they are to be with one of your latest novels. Uh, 
all, all you're concerned to do is uh, to, to bring the truth home as plainly and as clearly as you can. I'm not saying you shouldn't use the other. That's all. Uh, I, I'm not saying that you should only use biblical material for illustration, but that uh, in the context in which you're preaching, you can assume a certain amount of knowledge. I agree that today you can assume it less and less, and then you may have to explain the story in greater detail than you'd have had to do 50 years ago. But uh, the thing is that you do illustrate the point, and sometimes one will use more than one illustration to bring out the same point. You can use some something from contemporary history, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not, I, I wasn't laying down a rule that it should only be that. My tendency is to do that. I, I don't read many modern novels. Uh, I, I don't find I've got time to do so, and I'm not particularly interested to do so, but that's it. The point is that you're trying to make your point clear. You mentioned, uh, not too something about uh, the failure or success of a sermon. I wonder if you could perhaps lay out what you would consider to be a sermon's failure. Well, now, I wonder whether I said uh, we must get the tape played back. <laughs> whether I said that a sermon as such should, could be a success or failure. Uh, if, 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 I think what you mean is this. Uh, the sermon and its preaching. Well, you were referring to Spurgeon at the time, too. I can't remember the exact context. But, uh... Yes. Oh, yes, I'll tell you. Spurgeon's first visit to Scotland. That was it. Yes, his first visit to Scotland, he preached in Edinburgh. And as his custom was, he uh, had prepared a fresh sermon. But for some reason or another, the, the, the occasion was a failure. He felt that he'd failed. He, he, he felt that he'd failed to get his message over. He was utterly dissatisfied uh, with the, that preaching occasion and sent for the notes of his previous Sunday sermon. That was the point, isn't it? Well, now, well, again, you see, you've got the two things, the sermon and the preaching. Um, this, this sense of failure doesn't mean that the message of the sermon was wrong. The message of the sermon may have been quite correct and right, but somehow or another he had failed to deliver this and was conscious of this. You see what I mean? And, and um, you are conscious of this. It, I mean, as I said, you are not always right. You may be wrong. You may think that you failed, but someone has derived great benefit. That is because of the truth that was in the message, in spite of your preaching. But the preacher cannot uh, fail uh, to be conscious of whether he is doing what he sets out to do in a satisfactory manner or an unsatisfactory manner. That, that is the sense in which one can talk of success or failure. But because the truth is there, uh, the spirit can honor that and people may be influenced by that in spite of what the preacher feels. But clearly, what the preacher should always be aiming at is uh, the consciousness that he really has been used to deliver this message. And it's only in that context that I would talk about success or failure. Yes, yes. How much should you uh, depend on the 
Well, that's right. That's that's a perfectly good question. A very good question. And um, well, I, I I I confess that I I find it difficult to answer you. I think I've hinted at this that uh, the devil comes in, doesn't he? And our pride comes in, and um, it may be conceit that makes a man be over concerned with what he's done. Uh, the stages in this matter, uh, which one has to go through, uh, I, I think that the tendency of most of us, particularly in the early stages, is to be over concerned with what the people think about our preaching. Well, then you get through that stage, and then the second stage is the one in which you yourself are concerned about the standard of your preaching and the success of your preaching. I imagine that the real saint is a man who reaches a stage in which even he is not concerned about it. Uh, now, Paul has a statement, as you remember, in 1 Corinthians 4. It isn't dead on this, uh, and yet it is in the context of his ministry, which I th uh, uh, has always upbraided me, and uh, I, I felt I've come under its condemnation uh, many times, let me just read it to you because it's, a, it's an interesting statement. And as I say, it is, you see, beginning of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful then. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. I feel there's a kind of gradation there, isn't there? That um, we've got to be careful at this point. Uh, this element of pride does come in, and uh, I've had to deal with myself on this point many a time when I've gone out of the pulpit into my vestry dissatisfied and uh, I've suddenly found myself becoming dejected and have suddenly realized that this was quite wrong that I shouldn't be as preoccupied as this that I'd done my best I couldn't do more why was I so concerned and so you are led to examine yourself and you will often find that it is this kind of pride and morbid concern about one's success or failure, and that can be bad. I, th I, I think you're raising a very important point, and yet I've, I, I hesitate to, to say that, uh, that there shouldn't be this element. The danger is then, you see, to go to the other extreme, and you sort of, uh, you've preached and you think no more about it, and um, it'll probably mean in the end of the lowering of your standard. So you've got to strike this balance. Preaching is a tremendous thing. How would you uh, train a theological student how to preach? I've been trying to do so in 16 lectures. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I really can't go further. I, 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 you see, I, I said, didn't I, uh, you remember, that there is a sense in which this can't be done. That... Uh, that a man, uh, to use the expression, is either born a preacher or is not. And if he isn't, 
you can improve him somewhat, but you'll probably never make a preacher of him. Uh, in other words, the, the whole question of our call comes in here. Uh, God endows men with gifts, and then he calls those men to whom he's given these gifts. That was why I indicated certain natural qualities in the preacher, you see, uh, as well as further gifts that he receives. But um, all one can do is to, uh, well, you see, in the past, take now in the past, and when I mean the past, I mean over 200 years ago, what was the thing that made old William Tennant start that sort of school of the prophets in the Log College? Well, it was this, that a number of men had arisen who had been converted and who had felt this call and this desire to preach. And the people felt that they'd got this gift and encouraged them to use it. Well, now, those men, you see, up till that point received no training at all. And this has been true in many other countries as well. In other words, the church, the church seems to discover this gift in men. Uh, this is when the church is truly functioning as the church. If your church is a place in which the minister does everything and the people only listen, this won't happen. But if it's a church in which you have prayer meetings or fellowship meetings where people are given opportunity for speaking, well then talents begin to show themselves. And so the preachers emerge and then they're given opportunity to exercise their gifts. And it is then, on top of that, that they need an element of training. You see the idea? That the, the essential thing is there, it's given. And you only improve that and add to that. You can't create the primary thing. I don't know whether that's clear to you. Now, this is a somewhat involved question. Uh, the New Testament, especially the uh, pastoral epistles of Paul, seems to uh, speak of only one office beside that of deacon, that is an elder or a bishop. Now, I understand Paul to say that every elder must be sound uh, in the faith and teach it. Nowhere does it seem that it's indicated that this office of elder is necessarily a full time job. However, you have spoken uh, during the course of an office of preacher in the uh, professional sense of a full-time occupation. How and uh, on what basis do you distinguish this office of preacher from what Paul calls the elder chapter? Yes. Well, you know, you've got to take the New Testament as a whole, haven't you? And in another, elsewhere you, you, talk, you find talk about pastors and teachers, don't you? And that's got to be taken with this. And... Um, but it seems to me to be quite clear that in the New Testament church uh, there was a, a multiplicity of teachers. I would have thought in, in most churches, when I say multiplicity we don't know what the number was, but um, uh, I would take the view that the so-called one-man ministry, the whole time pastor, preacher, you know, as we know it, it was a later development, and I think there's no question about this. I'm glad that you raised this point. Um, the Puritans, the Puritan writers, I always feel 
are very unsatisfactory at this point. They, um, they take this for granted. They never argue it out and they never deal with it scripturally. They just assume it. Uh, and that was because it had long since become the custom before their day. Protestantism took over, didn't it, from Roman Catholicism many of these things. And I think that these were, these were developments. Now, the question is, are you satisfied with this development? Do you justify it? Well, all I can say is this, that it does seem uh, over the centuries in the history of the church that this is the best method. Uh, I can't find any evidence in the New Testament of the one-man ministry, but I find nothing in the New Testament against it. In other words, it depends, you see, uh, upon the, the condition of your church very largely. And I would have thought that the ideal situation is one in which you have the one man who is set apart primarily for the teaching ministry. And you do get that distinction, don't you? Uh, you're told uh, in, in Galatians 6 uh, to honor and to support these elders, especially them that teach in the word. They are worthy of special honor. Uh, so that this idea of the teacher comes out very clearly. And um, I think that this is something that we've got to, that we've got to recognize. Um, but the ideal is that in addition to that, that you should have opportunities in the life of the church for people to, to speak and to, and to exercise what gift they may have. Uh, in other words, I think we need to develop uh, the kind of fellowship meeting uh, where people can uh, speak on, on their experiences and speak on the scriptures. Uh, now this, this of course is something that has been done many times in, in different uh, sections of the church. And I'm a great believer in this, that uh, whether you call them society meetings or uh, class meetings or anything you choose, it doesn't matter so much. But that would be my answer in general to you. Now, I, I, it's a very interesting thing, this. Take the case of the Plymouth Brethren. I don't know whether you call them Plymouth Brethren here or only Brethren. Well, it, they're passing through a very interesting phase now with regard to this whole matter. Their original idea was, you remember, uh, that uh, there should not be the one-man ministry, but that uh, there should be freedom. They had an eldership, but there was freedom for people to preach, and they were very much opposed to the one-man ministry. But now, as far as Great Britain at any rate is concerned, and I think this is true in other countries, they have changed markedly and are moving very rapidly in the direction of the one man being set apart to do the teaching and the preaching. And the reason for that has been this, that if you gave complete liberty and let, left the meeting open, what tended to happen was that the same people got up Sunday after Sunday and said the same thing Sunday after Sunday. And it was found not to be profitable. And their young people in particular rebelled against that. And now I know of 
assemblies of brethren in Britain that have appointed pastors. And one man does the preaching and the teaching. They haven't done away with their breaking of bread. What they've done is to combine the two things. They have a 10 o'clock service in the morning, breaking of bread. Then at 11 o'clock, they have the kind of service that we are accustomed to in, in the other denominations. And again, I would say that there is a great deal to be said for that. This combination of the two. Yes? Would you say, though, that there is nothing uh, scripturally in principle against uh, some of the other elders who may hold uh, other jobs in society from getting up from time to time in the uh, state of services and uh, preaching the word? Well, uh, what I would say is this. You see, it depends what your object is, isn't it? And if your object is to... Uh, well, it depends upon your type of service. If it is a meeting of the church only, I see no objection to that. But if there are people coming in from the world, and it's as a, a wider prospect and a, uh, an evangelistic intent, then I would say it's better to confine it to the one man, because the others speaking might do more harm than good. I've actually known them do that on more than one occasion. So that in the interests of the gospel, I think in that kind of meeting it's better to confine it to the one man. But I do agree that there should be more opportunity given to people to, to speak in the life of the church. Um, Mr. Jones, for my own self, would you distinguish, or I've got a complicated question in my mind, but you either define or and or distinguish between the infilling of the Spirit, the baptism, and the anointing, with particular emphasis on whether it's a constant, the infilling part, whether it's a constant state, or whether it's exceptional in the sense of unexpected more, and whether the the power that's resultant is for witnessing or for personal notes. Really, I, I want to have your opinion rather than my question. Yes, well, I, of course, have dealt with this uh, from the standpoint of the power, haven't I, and the unction. Uh, to me, what we read of in Acts 2 was uh, a baptism of power. Our Lord's uh, prophecy, prediction of its coming, and his own statement, I think, makes that perfectly clear, that this is a power for witness. It is the highest form of assurance, and its object and design is to enable this man to witness. Now, the tragedy to me in this whole matter is the, the, the confusion that was introduced by John Wesley. He's been responsible for many things, but this was, I think, the, uh, the most serious one. John Wesley identified this with sanctification, talking about the pure heart, you know, and pure love and so on. And this is where the holiness movements have come in and, to me, have confused the entire issue. Uh, because I don't see any evidence in the New Testament to associate this with sanctification. It is a matter of power, power for witness. And, and I think it's important we should keep these things distinct. You see? Then, then I, I think that helps to deal with your difficulty. And, and then you see, this is something that can be repeated, as I was trying to show yesterday afternoon. You can know this access of power, but you can also know what it is to preach without it. And this can be repeated many times. Well, particularly, do you equate the baptism with the infilling? 
and second, uh, is it bad not to be? In other words, in the sense of not serious, but is it expected that all Christians be filled with the Spirit? Of well, yeah. Well, no, no. But wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. You see, you've got to draw a distinction here. In this way, take the take the statement in Ephesians five eighteen: Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, which uh, I believe means go on being filled with the Spirit. Now, there is something that we are commanded to do, are we not? This is an exhortation. Very well. It is something which is under our control. And negatively, we are told not to grieve the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit. In other words, the way to go on being filled with the Spirit is not to grieve Him not to offend him, and so on. Right, that is something that comes as an exhortation. But this effusion of power is not within our control at all. It is something that is given to us. It is something that happens to us. You are not commanded to do that because you can't do it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, people don't realize this. We've all been guilty. We've tried to work it up, but it cannot be worked up. You can work up a carnal excitement. You can work up a carnal enthusiasm. But th there's all the difference in the world between that and the power of the Spirit. But you see, Ephesians 5.18 is reference to the realm of sanctification, the living of the life. And there it's an exhortation. This is entirely different. <coughs> now, uh, I'm tempted uh, to use an illustration. And, uh, and this time not out of the scriptures. Uh, one of my own, which uh, it doesn't come from the scriptures or from the latest novel. Uh, so perhaps it's more acceptable. Um, the relationship between these two things, I think there is a relationship between them. But it's this sort of relationship. Uh, I don't know what you're going to make of this illustration. Illustrations are very dangerous things. People always point out, and rightly, of course, that you haven't covered some aspect. Illustrations are never complete. But this is how I've looked at it. The moment a man is regenerated, there is this seed of life, as John calls it, in him. And from that moment, his sanctification has started. And it goes on. Sanctification is progressive. Very well. The relationship between these two things I put like this. Take a farmer who has ploughed his field and broken it up, and he's sown the seed and he's rolled it over. And then for weeks nothing seems to happen. Can't see anything at all. But we know that the seed is there and it's got life in it, and it's already beginning to germinate and to grow. Then, after a while, it begins to appear above the surface and you see a sort of greenness as you look over the field. All right, the thing is growing, but then you have a very bad patch of weather. Cold and dry, no rain, and you, you really begin to wonder what's happening to your field. There's no evident growth at all. It just remains static for weeks. Then there will suddenly be a burst of sunshine and a shower and you can almost see that thing sprouting up. Now here is the relationship. The sunshine and the shower are this effusion of the spirit that I'm talking about in power and so on and 
assurance and so on, it has an effect upon your growth in sanctification, but it isn't sanctification itself. It obviously affects it. A man cannot have the love of God shed abroad in his heart and have this experience of the love of God to him without his affecting the whole of his life. Now, this is where I think John Wesley went astray. In the higher experiences of the Christian life, one feels that sin is utterly abhorrent and you feel you'll never sin again. You can't imagine yourself ever wanting to sin again in this experience. So they made the mistake, you see, of assuming, therefore, that this was an operation of the Spirit which had cleansed their hearts, had taken sin right out of them, and they thought they were perfect, and they began to talk about perfection. Now, I maintain it was entirely due to the misinterpretation of this exalted experience. I can understand it quite well, but it was muddled thinking. The two things are not the same. But this experience has such an influence upon the whole man that obviously it gives a kind of spurt to this process of development that has been going on the whole time, almost unobserved. I don't know whether that helps you. That would be to me the relationship. Big pardon? Well, well, you see, the term anointing, the t you see, I think these terms are interchangeable. These terms are interchangeable. The, uh, the, uh, this is the anointing. It is, it is an anointing for service and for preaching. You know, that's, that's, that's just another way of looking at it. As it's a very natural one, because these men in the Old Testament were anointed with oil, weren't they, for service and so on, so that it's, it's, a, it's a natural term to use. But this is not sanctification, remember. That's the thing I'm concerned about, that we do not confuse it with sanctification. In other words, let's put it like this to you. A man can have greatly grown in grace and in sanctification and still not have this anointing for preaching. On the other hand, a man can have a great anointing for preaching whose sanctification may be defective. And there have been many examples of these two things. You get them in the New Testament. The church at Corinth, you see, was so rich in gifts and so on, but poor from the standpoint of sanctification. So I think it is very important to keep these two things distinct as ideas in our thinking. Thursday evening, you were, or last Thursday evening, you spoke of the love of God's spell brought in hearts of Christians, and yet you said that this would not happen to all Christians. Uh, are you then speaking as if all of these people should be expecting this anointing of the Holy Spirit in order to preach? No. No, no, no. You see, let, let's speak. Let's let. No, no, that wasn't sanctification either. You see, look here. The, these these things have got to be kept distinct in this way. There are experiences, which I would say should be common to all Christians. All should grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. All should experience progressive sanctification. All should know assurance of salvation. But all are not gifted to be preachers. All are not meant to be preachers. So it works like this, that when the preacher gets this 
experience of the love of God shed abroad in his heart and this great assurance, the first thing that is affected in him is his preaching. He preaches with exceptional power. But you can have this same experience and know that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart and not be a preacher. You see what I mean? It doesn't make everybody a preacher. It, 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 it does affect every man's witness. In other words, it affects a man's witness in his private conversation with people. You remember perhaps that at one stage I referred you to Acts 8 verses 4 and 5. It's the account of the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem and we are t after the death of Stephen. And we are told that all the members of the church were scattered abroad except the apostles. And then in the fourth verse we are told that they, the common people now, not the apostles, went everywhere preaching the word. And then in the fifth verse, Philip, we are told, went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. And I pointed out to you, reminded you, of how the two words are different there. So the one did it in conversation, the other did it in a heralding manner. It's the difference between a witness from person to person in conversation and a heralding or a preaching of the message. You see what I mean? So that obviously this is going to affect the witness and the testimony of any Christian, but it doesn't turn them all into preachers. But it does seem to imply that you're telling all Christians to be looking for this work of the Holy Spirit. This certainly, certainly, certainly every Christian should desire to know the love of God as much as he can. And if he doesn't desire to know that, well, I wonder what I start preaching to him. I, see, if, I got the impression last Thursday that it was not a work applied to all Christians. I, exactly. I said that, and I still say so. I said you could be a Christian without this, but that if you're being preached to properly, you begin soon to desire this. That's the difference. You, uh, you can be a Christian without it, but I, the Christian I'm concerned about is the man who doesn't even desire it and who disputes the possibility of it and who would reduce the New Testament teaching to the level of his low experience. Oh no, that's the way to put it. You've spoken of the special unction of the Holy Spirit in connection with preaching. What connection, if any, would you see between this work of the Holy Spirit and uh, the gift of tongues and miracles and so on in the New Testament and today? Well, yes, I, I only made a glancing reference to that. You see, it seems to me that 1 Corinthians 12 teaches the sovereignty of the Spirit, that he giveth these gifts severally to whom he wills. Right, that to me suggests that uh, all people do not have these gifts at all times. They may or they may not. Therefore, I then go on to history. And what you find in history, the history of the church, is that uh, God has dealt with many men in this special way that I've been talking about, and they've known this special experience of the love of God shed abroad in the heart and this endowment with power for preaching and so on, but have not spoken in tongues. 
or done any one of these things of necessity. Well then I take those two things together and I say, well therefore it is clear that this may or may not happen. So when I'm confronted by a teaching which tells me that uh, I have not known this special blessing of the Spirit unless I've spoken in tongues, I say it's unscriptural. It is unscriptural and not true to the history of the church. You see, they've got it the wrong way around again. They become more interested in particular gifts than they do in the love of God shed abroad in the heart and in the sovereignty of the Spirit, and so confusion comes in again. And that is, I think, what we are experiencing at the present time. And it's, it's once more confusion, as I see it. I don't know, I, I don't want to go into this, but uh, if it may help you. Uh, well, uh, of course, you've been meeting this uh, as I've been meeting it in the past years. And I've had large numbers of people who come to me to talk to me about this. And uh, I, I'll simply give you my understanding of this. A man will come to me and say that he's been baptized with the Holy Ghost and that he's speaking in tongues and so on, and that this has been wonderful and so on. And the first question I always put to them then is, can you speak in tongues whenever you like? And the invariable answer I get is yes. I said, could you do it now? And they say, yes. And I, then I said, well, do it now, and they do. Well, now then, I then say to them, I don't see how you fit that in with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, where you read, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than ye all, which is to me the crucial verse in that whole treatment of the question by the great apostle. In this way, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than ye all. If a man can speak in tongues whenever he likes, what is the point of that statement? If it's something within my own control and I can do at will, like turning on a tap, all the apostle is there saying is, I decide to speak in tongues more frequently than any of you decide to speak in tongues. Well, what's the point of saying that? There's no purpose at all. I don't think it doesn't mean that at all. As I understand this teaching, it is this. Speaking in tongues, and here I know I am going against very well-known teaching, but uh, all right. I'm open to examination. As I understand this teaching, it does not refer to the ability to speak foreign languages, because the Apostle here differentiates between speaking with the understanding and speaking with tongues. He says that when he speaks in tongues he does not understand, and it's not profitable to his understanding. To me, what the Apostle is talking about is this. A man being taken up by the Spirit in a condition of ecstasy, or semi-ecstasy, I don't care how you describe it, but he's a man who is taken up and finds himself speaking in tongues which he doesn't understand, but though he doesn't understand what he's saying, he knows what's happening. He's worshipping God, he's glorying God in an exceptional way. 
He doesn't understand the words, but he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, here is something that a man does not will. It's something he finds happening to himself. So what Paul is saying in effect is this. Here were these Corinthians bursting about speaking in tongues. They'd elevated this to the primary position. And they were bursting of all this. Paul says, look here, if you want to start bursting about spiritual experiences and the frequency with which you know what it is to be taken up into the spirit, I think I know more about this than any one of you. Then there's some sense in it. And I believe that that is what he was saying. So clearly, it is not something a man can do at will. This to me is conclusive. So when a man comes to me and does it at will, I say this is psychological. This is a kind of, uh, not so much auto-suggestion as a kind of auto-hypnotism. And we are familiar with the fact that spiritists can speak in tongues. And I, I, I believe that even short of spiritism and evil spirits, that, that this is a phenomenon which is known. And I believe that these men are indulging in some kind of psychological process. This to me is conclusive. I, 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 I have spoken to leaders in this movement on this verse and they can't answer me. Uh, and uh, I would be interested if somebody can explain it in some other way. Well, uh, would you, uh, in the light of the New Testament evidence, would you agree with the thesis of Warfield that the charismata, as you read in First Corinthians, have come to a close in the first century by the death of the apostles? No, I'm saying, that's what I was saying, that I didn't accept a, a very well-known teaching on this matter. But my answer is this. While I don't accept that, I don't accept the teaching that's current today either. I say that this is something in the sovereignty of the Spirit. And if he chooses to give these gifts again, I would not be surprised. All I do know is that it is clear to me in the history of individual men and in the history of the church, that men have clearly received this special effusion and blessing of the Spirit beyond any question and have testified to it of all shades of theological opinion, but have not spoken in tongues, so that it's clear that the Spirit in his sovereignty has not chosen to give it very often since the end of the New, New Testament times. There are claims, I know, that he's done so, in various places at different times, in the south of France and in, in other places. But looking at it in general, you see, that seems to me to be the position. So that I would not agree with the teaching that deduces from this history that it all ended in the apostolic era. I, I, I find no New Testament warrant for saying that. But likewise, when people talk to me about claiming these gifts and... Uh, doing something to start getting the gift and so on. I see you're denying the teaching of the scripture. This is the sovereignty of the spirit. And you see, this is what's interesting. Let me put this point further to you. I was saying, I think it was yesterday, yes, that the apostles never knew when they were going to work a miracle. A very striking point in my opinion. You look at the book of Acts. I put it like this, I think, to you. The apostles never announced that there was going to be a healing service uh, next Thursday. Never. 
So these men who do this put themselves outside the book of Acts immediately. Why didn't the apostles announce they were going to do it? My answer is that they didn't know when they were going to do it. They were given a commission. They were given the power. They knew it was going to happen, so they looked at the men and said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. No failures. Right. This is surely something that is true of all the gifts. All of them. Miracles is one of the list of gifts given in 1 Corinthians 12, as you know. Therefore, I say that as a man doesn't know when he's going to work a miracle, he doesn't know when he's going to speak in tongues. So a man who tells me he can do it whenever he likes is putting himself into an unscriptural position. And I become doubtful as to the phenomenon that I'm witnessing. You see, you see, you see my argument. That, that this, I think we've forgotten this element in all this. This is something that happens to a man. He's not in control. Except this, that let's be clear about this. And this again stumbles people. And, I, and yet I don't find it difficult at all. In that same 1 Corinthians 14, while Paul seems to me to be saying clearly that you cannot initiate this, you can control it. Because he says that if a man is speaking under this kind of inspiration and another receives a message, that the first man is to stop and give an opportunity to the second. So that while you can't initiate this, you can control it. You can refrain. It's a mystery, but it's obviously a fact. And I think that we're all aware of this in a measure, that, that um, while no preacher can tell you beforehand what is going to happen in a service, he can resist the spirit and he can quench the spirit in that service. A man may be preaching and the spirit may take hold of him, and lift him up and use him. Now, he may, in the interest of his own pride or the opinion of others or one of many such reasons, he may deliberately quench that spirit. He can't start it, but he can quench it. He can stop it. That seems to me to be the New Testament teaching. In order to understand uh, the work of the Holy Spirit we're talking about, yesterday you combined several things. Uh, reference, we're saying that preachers should have this boldness to preach. You mentioned Pentecost and the boldness the apostles had before civil magistrates and John being the spirit of the Lord's day. And I was wondering if there, you said that sometimes you set up arbitrary cutoff points for the sovereign activity of the Holy Spirit. But one of these sovereign acts of the Holy Spirit was revelation. In fact, that probably is the connection with John and the Spirit. Oh, yes. If you would see, uh, in some sense, some of the actions of the Holy Spirit as stopping with the apostles. Oh, yes, certainly. You see, this matter of revelation clearly stops with them. I think that's, that's, uh, that's abundant, abundantly clear. That is the means now whereby we test what we claim to be a movement of the Spirit upon us. Uh, and, of course, you're right in saying that uh, on that occasion John was given revelation. All I was concerned to show was that the very term that he uses about himself, that he was in the spirit, meant, meant that it was something unusual. That's, that was all I was concerned to prove there. It was one of my series of proofs, wasn't it? 
But that you mustn't deduce from that that, well, in the other cases, you see, there was no revelation involved. It was a command to do something, or it was an ability to speak with power. Peter was not given a revelation when he was addressing the Sanhedrin with John in Acts 4. There's no revelation there, was there? So you mustn't, because there was revelation in one case, you mustn't assume that there's revelation in all cases. All I was asserting was that you mustn't say that this has happened once and forever at Pentecost. You mustn't say that it happens to all of us once and forever at our regeneration. That's my point. This can be repeated. But uh, it doesn't involve the question of revelation. If there's one baptism, and assuming this construction, one baptism and many fillings, comment on the time of the baptism. Yes, even though I, I, I must confess, I don't like these phrases that have come in. I, I dislike them very much. One baptism, many fillings, and, and so on, this, this jargon. Um, all I'm concerned to say is this, that a man can know this access of power, this visitation of the Spirit, many times, as there have been many revivals in the history of the Church, so this can happen many times to one individual. Now, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about sanctification. Not talking about sanctification. Now, all that business, one baptism, many feelings, is generally about sanctification. I'm not talking. That's where the confusion has come in. No, no. Well, now then, I don't know which of you I saw first. I th you and the others to me. Did you say that? outside of a context of revival, we should strive always to preach filled with the Spirit, but it's possible for a Christian man not to. Yes, sir. You're perfectly right. And that is the sadness of it all. You see that there is this variation in our preaching. My saying is, my statement is this, that this is what one should always desire what one should always pray for, and I'll go further. Once you've known this, you'll not be satisfied with anything less, but you'll experience it many times. But you should always be seeking this. You see, again, this I'm glad you said that, because I, I, I don't think I told you the story. I think I put it in a little book of mine, which was published under the title Authority of a preacher on a, on a, on a, on a, on a great uh, synodical occasion when preachers and people had come together in the thousands from different parts of the country and this man was to be the last preacher and uh, everybody were assembled, the preachers and others were on the platform and the people were all waiting, some most standing and some sitting and the time had arrived but the preacher hadn't come and they looked at one another, and where was he? They waited, and they sang some hymns. Still the men didn't come. So the local minister sent a maid, whom he found nearby, to the house where this man was staying, and said, go and tell him that it's time, and everybody's waiting. And the girl ran, and she ran back. And she, they, they said, well, where is he? Well, she said, um, he's evidently talking to somebody. 
Well, they said, go back and tell him to stop, to stop talking to somebody and come and preach everybody's waiting. So the girl ran again. And she ran back again and she said, well, he's still talking to somebody because I heard him saying, if you don't come with me, I'm not going to preach. Oh, said the old minister, if that is what he's saying, we'd better wait. <laughs> and they did wait. And eventually the preacher came and he preached in such a manner that as the result of that one sermon, within the next six months, 1,000 people roughly were added to the membership of the churches in that whole area. Now, this has been my problem. I'm free to confess it to you. Should one always do that? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there is a regular ministry of the Spirit through us, and we should preach in that. We shouldn't refrain from preaching at all times. Now, I'm convinced that this man was being dealt with in a very special way, you see, for this very special occasion. So go on preaching, but always pray and hope for this unusual and exceptional. Well, our time has gone, so we leave it for that, at that for today, and God willing, we'll go on again tomorrow afternoon. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.